So today we start the last section of the first half of our class, namely we're going to talk about a couple of heroic myths over the next two lectures. Um, and then it is time for the midterm. So again, if you are not prepared for it, now is the time. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about the midterm more either online or in class. Um, so don't worry about it now. But if you do have questions about the midterm, it is time to resolve those before we get too much farther underway. Um, but enough about that. Let's talk about Jason and the Argonauts. Um, so first off, like, you'll notice that Jason and the Argonauts is another one of our Apollodorus stories. Uh, we're going to be getting the story of Heracles next time from Apollodorus as well, um, which means we get our usual very terse, very concise, um, very direct approach to the storytelling. But this is actually really effective um, in this with Apollodorus this time around. Um, while it's really difficult to track everything that's going on when Apollodorus is telling stories of, like, Thebes and all the crazy shit that's going down there, um, when you have one major character or one major quest line, Apollodorus actually works much better. Um, so I have no qualms about having us read Apollodorus for Jason and the Argonauts and for Heracles, because it's much more straightforward. Um, but one of the things I want to sort of stress about the Jason and the Argonauts narrative in this particular lecture, um, I want to sort of just walk through it and look at all of the specific things that are happening, like what each quest, what each component of the quest actually like means um because most of the heroic narratives in this sense have this sort of structure like they're arranged quest by quest um like event by event um and this is also good practice because in the second half of the class we're going to be focusing on the sustained narratives of the iliad and the odyssey so it's time in our class to sort of start turning our attention from getting the content and like appreciating the approaches um, that I've been bringing up, like the cultural approach, the identity approach, the uh, approach of morality, and the approach of like what values are being communicated by each myth um, through comparison and contrast to the various myths that we're dealing with and the various cultures producing them. And it's time to start looking at like hardcore analysis. What does our specific author, what does this specific myth tell us about the world? Um, what values are communicated in like the episode by episode level rather than in like the grand macro um, myth by myth level. Um, so with that in mind, let's start with exactly what's going on with Jason in this adventure. Like what is his actual quest? And you'll notice that his political situation as he's getting ready to depart um, is... Trixie at best. Um, so we've got Cretheus, who is like the head king um, initially, and he has two sons, Aeson and uh, Peleus. Um, Peleus is apparently the guy who becomes king, but you'll notice that Aeson is in fact like in the kingly line. He is also the son of the, the high king Cretheus. Um, and it is Aeson who gives birth to Jason. So Already we have a situation where Jason is the nephew of Peleus, Peleus is king, and Peleus gets this prophecy that he is going to be undone, likely murdered, um, by the man with the single sandal. And, you know, initially Peleus doesn't pay this all too much mind, but then Jason shows up at some funeral ceremony or something, um, and it turns out that he's got 
he's lost a sandal in the stream on the way to this to the sacrifice it says um and as a result he is the man with the one sandal so peleus immediately freaks out knows that jason is going to murder him and he basically turns the situation on his head um you'll notice that like the reason why jason has to go chase the fleece is because jason himself comes up with it peleus asks jason so if you knew what was you know if you knew that someone was going to murder you what would you do about it and jason responds well i'd send him after the golden fleece the theory being that it's so impossibly difficult that he could never get it and he would be killed in the process and therefore that would conveniently get me rid of my murderer. And, you know, Peleus, not missing a trick, immediately responds, okay, Jason, congratulations, you're going to go get the Golden Fleece. Um, so notice that, you know, unlike most of the heroic narratives as we typically understand them where it's like there's a call to adventure and then, you know, you resist the call and so on, like, notice that the Greeks do not bandy about that. They are not interested in sort of the motivation of Jason. Um, and in fact, we'll see this a lot in Greek mythology. Most of the time, the quests are kind of obligatory in some sense. They're usually not deriving out of the character of the person who is embarking upon them. Um, and this is especially the case with Jason. Like, if anything, Jason's plan backfires here. Um, like Jason is sort of hoisted by his own petard. He is, he falls into the trap that he sets unwittingly for himself. Um, but also importantly note that this is an opportunity for Peleus to just get rid of him. Like this is typical in Greek mythology. You'll notice that, um, Perseus has a fairly similar thing happen to him. He also like boasts that he's going to get the head of the Gorgon, um, for this bride gift, and this has all been orchestrated by his enemies to get rid of him. Um, Bellerophon's in the same situation. Theseus is a little different. Theseus, like, is motivated by his own, like, interest in saving Athens. Um, but even Heracles, like, he goes on the Twelve Labors not out of a sense of, like, obligation or to, like, help people, but because he is guilted into it. The gods force him to do this. Um, and you'll notice that even Apollodorus mentions that it could have been an instigation by Hera that he answers to bring the Golden Fleece. Um, Hera is, weirdly, Jason's patron in this myth. And this is the one time you're going to see Hera actually helping a hero out. Um, do not get used to this. This is very unusual. She is much more often the antagonist in this situation. Um, but she favors Jason. And not because of anything cool about Jason, but because she just hates Peleus. Because apparently, like, Peleus has been giving her the shaft and the sacrifices lately. So, once again, of course, Hera is acting out of spite. Um, spite of Peleus leads her to patronize Jason. Um, but also, keep this in mind... Most of the heroes that we're going to run into have a patron deity, like a one of the gods is helping them out especially well. Um, but let's put that on the back burner, keep it in mind as we go forward. For now, we need to talk about the Argonauts themselves. Uh, because as much as Jason is sort of the central character in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, it's largely just nominal. Like, he's there, it's his story, but really all the cool stuff is done by other people. Um, the Argonauts is a team myth. 
Um, like there are various heroic actions committed by various heroes, um, and Jason is rarely the one to do the cool stuff. Although he will have his own role to play later when we actually get to Colchis and it's time to get the Golden Fleece. Um, so you'll notice that Apollodorus gives us this huge list of the Argonauts, like. 50 people or more um, and I don't want to sort of like stress exactly who everyone is most of these are C-list heroes at best um, but there are a couple of A-listers and a couple of B-listers on here that are worth talking about um, first of all you should absolutely notice that Her Heracles is on this trip like Heracles is kind of the worst on this trip he doesn't do anything you kind of just imagine him like sleeping off most of the adventures in the hold of the Argo um, and he will in fact get lost like three quests in um, which we'll come back to but it is significant that Heracles the most important of the Greek heroes um, is hanging out with Jason and the Argonauts like this is just another feather in his cap like he he checked the list um, and therefore, you know, he has all of the honor of all of the cool things that Heracles himself does, but also the honor of being on the Argo, um, since this is apparently, like, the closest thing to a hero convention in all of Greek literature. Um, you'll also know that we get, um, Theseus. Theseus is also on this trip. Um, apparently, like, at this point, Athens is a thing. He's saved the Athenians at like he's already beaten the Minotaur, but this is before he gets stuck on the on the bench in Hades um, with Perithous. Um, so Theseus is also on this trip. These are two of our major major A-listers. Like the fact that they are on this trip gives a lot of credibility to the voyage of the Argo, and you know there's some real heroic muscle being shown here. Um, but you'll also notice we have Laertes, son of Arcesios who you probably don't know at this point, but you will. Laertes is the father of Odysseus. Um, and this should already sort of like give us an idea of the time frames that we're dealing with as far as the mythic heroic tradition is concerned. Um, like, again, Heracles and Theseus are A-listers. They are really powerful, awesome heroes. Um, they are arguably some of the best heroes in the Greek tradition. Like, no one is stronger than Heracles, no hero is greater than Heracles, and Theseus is pretty close, like, comparable in his power set and honor. And Laertes is hanging out with him. Um, but the more famous son, Odysseus, is going to be living and doing his thing at, like a generation after Theseus and Heracles lived. And this is something that will actually come up in the Iliad and the Odyssey, though we're not going to read too much about it. Um, our translation and uh, expurgation, like Lombardo conveniently leaves out most of the long passages where Nestor stands up and talks about how great the good old days were. Um, but one of the consistent themes in the Iliad, which you should also remember from Hesiod, um, is that each generation of Greek heroes is a little bit worse than the generation that came before, with some very rare exceptions like Achilles. You remember in Hesiod that there are the four races of men, the gold race, the silver race, the bronze race, the heroic race, and then the iron race of men, which is inferior to all the successive generations. Um, one of the things that is emphasized in Homer 
is that, like, from Nestor's perspective, who used to run around with Heracles and Theseus and all of the heroes of yesteryear, um, they are way more powerful than Achilles and Odysseus and Ajax and Agamemnon and Hector and all of the heroes of the Trojan War. Um, in a sense, like, Heracles and Theseus are A-listers sheerly by their place in time, whereas Achilles and Odysseus are B-listers just by virtue of the fact that they were born after the heroes that came before them. And it is implied, um, both by Hesiod when he says that, like, this is the heroic age and these heroes are all, like, members of this fourth age of men, but everyone listening to this poem is the fifth age. Um, it's also implied by Homer that anyone listening to this story, listening to a bard tell them the story of Homer, or the story the story of the Iliad or the Odyssey, um, is himself an inferior sort of singer than the singers of the Trojan War, but also that anyone listening, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how strong they are, no matter what their military successes, are always going to be inferior to Achilles and Odysseus, who were themselves inferior to Theseus and Heracles. Um, the voyage of the Argo is a voyage of A-listers in the heroic age, like the first generation of great heroes. Um, these heroes that come after them, like Achilles, like Odysseus, like Hector, are a pale shadow of even them. Um, and these guys are themselves strong and powerful and important. And this is important to the Greeks. Um, this goes right along with this notion of fate and this idea that, like, you know, humans are degenerating. Um, this is a fairly common common conviction, like a common belief. Um, remember when C.S. Lewis was talking about the nature of myth, and he said that some myths don't actually have a story attached at all, that they're just this idea that pervades the culture. This is one of those ideas. And it is an idea that is so pervasive um, that medieval theologians and philosophers and writers are going to have the same ideas. The idea that humans progress, that our generation is better than the generation that came before, and that generation was better than the generation that came before, that humans are sort of improving um, from generation to generation. This only exists and is only sort of prominent um, in the last, I'll generously say 500 years, but probably more accurately three or 200. Um, for much of human life and society, for much of human history, we have instead emphasized that we are not nearly as awesome as the generations that came before. Um, no matter how awesome the Jewish rabbis are today, they are a pale shadow of what Moses and Elijah were in the Old Testament. Um, no matter how great your military heroes um, of you know the last hundred years they will always pale in comparison to you know the heroes of the myths of you know heracles of achilles of gilgamesh um those men were truly great as we frequently understand it and in the medieval period especially like they are always hung up about the roman empire like we talked about the roman empire very much fell around 500 a.d or at least changed dramatically um, and the papacy and Western Europe in general was always trying to get back to that. They were, you know, longing for bygone days when the world was good, when it was organized, when it was civilized, when men were men and women were women, and, you know, this is the way of things. Um, this 
is pervasive in Greek mythology and in most mythology across the board and in most human storytelling across the board. Um, the idea that we need to return to a better time, you know, make America great again, this is not new. Um, this is something that has resonated with human beings for thousands of years. Um, and it is apparent here. Like the, the heroes of the Argo, this was the greatest collection of Greek heroism ever. Um, never, ever to be repeated again. Like even the Trojan War, as awesome as it was, as much as it was this grand showing of the Greek prowess at the time, it had nothing in comparison to the voyage of the Argo, as you know, downplayed as Apollodorus gives it to us. Um, and you'll notice that many of the other members of the Argo are also demigods. Um, so you've got, you, you, you'll notice that Apollodorus emphasizes whenever there's a god who is in the patronage of a, of a hero. So Heracles, son of Zeus, um, Palaemon, son of Hephaestus, um, Autolycus, son of Hermes. Um, like there are quite a few uh, people on the list um, who are the direct child of one of the major gods. Um, several of Hermes, a couple of Poseidon, one of Dionysus. Like, this is a really impressive list. Um, this is very much, like, the best and brightest of the time. Um, and more than that, like, people like this don't exist anymore. Even as late as, or even as early as, you know, the Greek archaic period when Hesiod and Homer are initially writing these things they recognize like the 400 years that have gone by since the Trojan War have just brought humankind to a smaller and more degraded form. Um, they long for the days of Odysseus and Achilles and Odysseus and Achilles long for the days of Heracles and Theseus and Autolycus and so on. Um, now the other one that I do sort of want to mention here, sort of draw out, um, is Atalanta, the daughter of Shonius, or Sconius. Um, she is the one female member of the team, um, and Atalanta will have other myths associated with her. Um, we'll get to one of the myths of Atalanta considerably later in the semester, like as the last thing we read from Ovid. Um, Atalanta is known for being one of the Amazonian women, um, the Amazons we run into with Jason and the Argonauts, if I'm not mistaken, we'll run into them again with Heracles. Um, they sort of hang out and pop up frequently throughout these myths. Um, they're a race of warrior women, and the Greeks do not fully understand exactly what the deal is. Um, but according to the tradition, like, they would, you know, keep their bows and arrows slung across their backs um, and, like, ride into battle bare-chested, which, you know, is scandalous to the Greeks. But also, in order to more conveniently carry their bows, they would cut off one of their own breasts in order to more easily, like, facilitate it um, to ride more comfortably. Which should sort of drive home the point that, like, as much as the Greeks admire this race of warrior women, they also acknowledge that they have to basically like turn themselves into men in order to properly be warriors um, like they have to you know literally cut off one of the indicators of their femininity in order to become warriors um, which we'll come back to momentarily the other thing to keep in mind is that the argo itself is awesome like it's a magic ship 
Um, it is a huge ship, 50 oars, which is considerably larger than most of the ships you're going to run into, like even in the Trojan War. Um, and it also speaks, it talks, like Athena fitted in a speaking timber from the Oak of Dodona. Um, so the ship will frequently advise them over the course of their adventures, and Hera will often talk through it um, as she advises them on their quests. But let's jump into the actual quest. Like, what do the um, Argonauts actually run into? Um, and you'll notice that the first quest, the epic beginning of the voyage of the Argo, is sleeping with the smelly women of Lemnos. Uh, believe it or not, we've actually run into Lemnos once before. Um, Lemnos was one of the stopovers on the road to the Trojan War, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and at that point, I believe like the smelling situation had already been taken care of um but you know again there's no canon in mythology so it's always unclear like whether events are before or after and there's certainly no cause and effect um but we'll come back around to that as well um the smelly women of lemnos apparently did not honor aphrodite and as a result she struck all of the women of lemnos with a horrible smell um and when the women of lemnos were so smelly their husbands would no longer sleep with them so their husbands went raiding other islands carried off a bunch of women and started sleeping with them instead at which point the smelly women of lemnos kind of understandably murder all of their husbands and all of the menfolk in lemnos and now we've just got the smelly women of lemnos and the not so smelly women of lemnos who really got a bad deal on this one because now they're just you know stuck here with the smelly women um and the heroic feat of jason and the argonauts is that they sleep with the smelly women of lemnos um I emphasize this one, even though I probably shouldn't. Like, you'll notice that a lot of the heroic myths kind of start off with these weird sort of... And then they slept with people, because reasons. Um, like, there's a weird amount of focus that Apollodorus gives to, like, heroic... In, or the initial act of a hero being... Um, but I do want to sort of draw a special attention to this particular case. Because you should already notice a bit of a trend here. Um, this is the Hera mission, i.e. the mission undertaken because Hera spitefully wanted to get back at Phineas, or not Phineas, Peleus. Um, and now we've got women again, spiteful women who murdered their husbands because their husbands would not sleep with them, and Jason and the Argonauts heroically sleep with the smelly women. Um, but notice, like, you expect more from this myth. Like, I would... You know, based on all of our knowledge of fairy tales and of, like, the Beauty and the Beast and Princess and the Frog and, like, who knows, you kind of expect that Jason and the Argonauts sleep with the smelly women and, like, the curse is broken! Hooray! Now the smelly women are not smelly anymore. But Apollodorus, if that's the case, does not know about it and does not care. Like, we just get, yep, they, smelt, they slept with them and then, hooray, that's it. Um, we, Jason has a couple of kids with Hypsipyle, the leader of the smelly women, and, and that's it. Like, that's, that's all you need to know. Like, apparently either the Argonauts were just really desperate to get laid at this point, or just, like, they thought it would be a challenge, or maybe they were all really, really drunk. Who knows? Um, this is just the first thing that happened. They slept with the smelly women of Lemnos. Um... 
So moving on, we might very well have to revisit this. The next heroic adventure of the Argonauts, um, at the top of page 257 in our textbook. And after Lemnos, they landed among the Doliones, of whom Kaisikos was king. He received them kindly. But having put to sea from there by night and met with contrary winds, they lost their bearings and landed again among the Doliones. However, the Doliones, taking them for a pelate Pelasgian army, for they were constantly harassed by the Pelasgians, joined battle with them by night in mutual ignorance of each other. The Argonauts slew many, among them Kaisikos, but by day, when they realized what they had done, they mourned and cut off their hair and gave Kaisikos a lavish burial, and after the burial they sailed away and touched at Mycia. So, heroic act of the Argonauts number two, they basically hang out with a really nice guy named Kaisikos who treats them well and like good hospitality is shown to them. They sail off, get lost, come back in the middle of the night unwittingly, and then slaughter systematically Kaisikos and basically all of his army. You know, the same guys who gave them good hospitality and generous lodgings literally the night before. So that's not great. Um, this is actually something that we're also going to run into fairly frequently in Greek heroic mythology. Like, oftentimes when Greek raiding parties are off doing exciting adventures, like heroic adventures like the Argonauts, or, you know, just, you know, heroic deeds like the ones recorded in the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, because the winds are unpredictable and the seas are not charted, and basically every time somebody gets into a boat, they're just trusting their lives to Poseidon and Zeus... Um, this kind of misunderstanding is going to happen pretty frequently. Like, people go to war with each other not even knowing who they are. Um, just because, you know, they needed more food and this was a place to go, or oops, they invaded in the night and turns out they weren't invaders at all. Um, seems like a lot of these things would be solved if the Greeks just talked to each other, but they don't. They just kill each other pretty frequently. So, heroic deed number one, sleeping with the smelly women of Lemnos for no good reason. Heroic deed number two, accidentally slaughtering all of their friends in a horrific misunderstanding. Um, the Argonauts are not off to a great start. Um, at Mycia, heroic deed number three of the Argonauts, if we even can count it at this point, is apparently like the nymphs carry off Hylas, who is especially attractive and also apparently sleeping with Heracles. Um, keep in mind, again, Hylas is probably a young boy. Like, this is one of those pederasty situations, as I've discussed in an earlier lecture. Um, in all likelihood, like, Heracles was patronizing Erastes to Hylas's Aramanos. Um, and as a result, like, when they carry off Hylas, Heracles goes charging after him. Um, and the Argonauts apparently do not feel terribly concerned about Hylas. They do not stop to rescue him. They just, like, take off. Tough cookies for Heracles. Sure, he'll find his way back to the mainland somehow. So, again, not off to a great start. We're now on quest number three, and so far... Nothing has been accomplished except just misunderstandings and sleeping with the smelly women. But, fortunately, we have Quest 4 to look forward to. From Mycia they departed to the land of the Bebrikes, which was ruled by King Amicos, son of Poseidon and a Bithynian nymph. A notable man, he compelled the strangers that landed to box, and in that made way made an end of them. So they land on the island with the boxing guy. 
And Pollux, or Polydukes, boxed with him and killed him. Hooray! The first actual heroic accomplishment of the Argonauts. They killed the boxing ass. Um, so at least we've got that going for us. But notice, not Jason, Polydukes, Pollux, of Castor and Pollux. Um, Castor and Pollux have their own sort of heroic adventures recorded, recorded elsewhere. Um, it should be noticed that, like, Again, Jason doesn't actually participate in most of the heroic deeds recorded amongst Jason and the Argonauts. Most of the great, awesome things that are done are done by other Argonauts. Um, Jason's kind of just along for the ride until they get to Colchis, um, which we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, so finally, four adventures, and one of them was actually an unmitigated success. Killed the boxing asshole. Hooray. Um, not even weird sleeping with smelly women for whatever reason. Maybe they lost a bet? I don't know. Episode 5! Then they put to sea and came to land at Salmidisos in Thrace, where Phineas lived, a seer blind of both eyes. Now, this one's a little bit complicated, and this is one of sort of the A-list accomplishments of the Argonauts, one of the ones that you will hear about most often. Um, most of the other ones we've talked about are fairly minor and recorded only in certain situations. Apollodorus just includes them because he is very thorough. Um, the fight against the Harpies is especially important. Phineas is getting tormented by these Harpies who will, like, swoop down and carry off his food. Like, every time that they set the table for Phineas, which apparently they can't do it, like, indoors for some reason, um, the Harpies sweep down and then, like, carry off his food and Phineas is, like, gradually starving to death. Um, now... He's being punished by the gods for foretelling the future, which is is weird. Um, usually, like, fortune tellers have a kind of tough gig in the Olympian world. Um, well, like, you'll remember Cassandra, who, you know, was telling the future and therefore got in trouble and now is punished so that nobody believes her, even though she always tells the truth. Um, Tiresias is punished... Uh, like, depending on who you trust, um, for running into the two snakes that were copulating and was thus, like, turned into a woman for a while, or blinded, or both. Um, there's numerous risks to being a prophet or fortune teller without the direct approval of Apollo. Um, but Phineas is one of these sort of rogue seers, um, and the Argonauts are stopping in with him because he will give them information about, like, where to go and how to, you know, get to Colchis and get the... Uh, golden fleece um, but first Phineas will not help them until they take care of this whole harpy problem um, but notice how the harpies are portrayed here like this is at this point we've already got sort of two possibly more examples of women being the worst in this story we've got Hera spitefully shutting down Peleus we've got um, the smelly women of Lemnos punished for, you know, murdering their husbands slash not liking Aphrodite. Um, we've also got the whole Hylas story, which is yet another example of love sending people to their doom, in a sense. Like, Heracles gets kicked off the mission because he just loves Hylas so freaking much. And now we've got the Harpies. We've got... Phineas basically being tormented by female-oriented creatures who literally eat him out of house and home to the point that he cannot enjoy his own food. Um, like, the symbolism here is not subtle. Not even a little bit. 
Um, the one thing the harpies have going for them is that they, they can fly. Like, they fly down from the sky, that's why nobody can stop them. But, as soon as the Argonauts show up, they send the sons of Boreas, Zedes and Calais, and they also can fly. They also apparently have wings, in which case, like, why are they riding on the boat? But whatever. Um, they chase off the harpies, and there's this whole thing, and they, like, track down the harpies and kill most of them, or some of them, like, fall into the river, or some of them are lost. Um, there's this thing that the Sons of Boreas will die if they cannot catch up with a fugitive, so there are some traditions that say that, like, they don't catch the harpies, and, like, everyone dies in this process. At any rate, the harpies are taken care of. Again, not due to Jason. Jason is, you know, picking his nose back in the ship while the sons of Boreas are handling this particular situation, which reasonably, like, they are uniquely suited to this task. But that's also one of the things that we should notice. Like, most of the stories of the Argonauts are, you know, one particular threat appears, which has a very specialized power set, like the Boxer or the Harpies, and then they are faced down by one of the Greek heroes, who is also really good at that, either boxing or flying, and then that member of the Argonauts beats whoever the threat is, and congratulations, the, the mission is accomplished, the quest continues. Um, now Phineas tells the Argonauts that the next thing that they need to deal with is these clashing rocks. Um, and we're going to see the clashing rocks again. Odysseus is going to have to deal with them, or rather just completely avoid them. Um, but in this particular case, Phineas advises that they actually go through the crashing rocks, like it's unavoidable for whatever reason. And apparently these are just like, there's these huge cliffs with a small, narrow, like, strip of sea flowing between them, and like, they just crash into each other. The cliffs or the rocks on the cliffs, they like repeatedly bang into each other and then retract and then bang into each other and retract, and so on and so forth. Um... So what he instructs the Argonauts to do is they send like a dove to fly between the crashing rocks. And when the dove makes it through, just then it's okay to go through. But if it doesn't make it through, then they should hold off, send another dove, and so on and so forth. Um, so in this particular case, they send the dove through and the rocks smash just the tail feathers of the dove. Like it barely makes it through. Um, and it's relatively unscathed on the other side. And immediately after they see this, they like power forward when the rocks retract. And just like the dove, the rocks smash just the very back end of the ship, like the top of the poop, which is the rear part of the ship. Um, and then apparently, according to Apollodorus, this is where the clashing rocks stand still. Um, because it was fated that as soon as a ship had made the passage, they should come to rest completely. So they overcome the clashing rocks. And once again, we have like a true blue actual accomplishment of the Argonauts. Like this is a heroic feat. Um, just like beating the boxer who was like compulsively boxing people to death. Just like they beat the harpies who were tormenting Phineas. Well, now they have overcome the crashing rocks and it is now supposedly safe to go through this passage. Which is weird because again Odysseus is going to have to grapple with the crashing rocks and they are not still like he can't just sail through it so apparently like this is one of those situations where the crashing rocks get retconned at some point whatever at this point they finally like 
they have a small adventure. Argonauts now arrived among the Merry Indians, and their king Lycos received them kindly. There died Idmon the seer of a wound inflicted by a boar, and there too died Typhus, and Anakios undertook the, to steer the ship. Notice that, like, we don't get any much about this, so don't worry about it. Like, there's no particular heroic adventure, no supernatural happening. Just, like, a couple people die for dumb reasons, for some reason. Like, Typhus doesn't even get an explanation. Like, he apparently just, like, had a stroke or something, or, you know, fell off a balcony. Who knows? Um, at any rate, this is where we finally get to Colchis, and sort of the goal of our adventure. Um, Colchis is where the golden is... Basically nothing except having Medea fall in love with him. Um, now we get a heroic challenge here. They show up and they're like, hey, we need the Golden Fleece to complete this epic quest that we're on. P.S. We're a giant ship of heroes, so don't mess with us. And Aetes, who is in charge of the place, says, if um, someone will take care of these brazen-footed bulls, like bronze-feeded bulls, um, that apparently, like, puff fire from their mouths. Apparently these are a gift of Hephaestus, who doesn't appreciate the fact that, like, giving people fire-breathing bulls is not necessarily a great way to endear yourself to them, um, since IETs can't do anything with them. Um, but also, he wants him to sow dragon's teeth, which we should know from our readings about thieves. Um, when Cadmus sows dragon teeth, humans will spring up out of the ground. Um, only these are typically very violent humans, and therefore you should do it at a safe distance, because otherwise they will kill you. Um, so, once again, we have yet another, like, within the context of the heroic quest meant to kill Jason, another heroic quest meant to kill Jason. Aetes obviously does not intend to get rid of um, the Golden Fleece. Instead, he's basically trying to just off the people who came to get them through their roundabout heroic quests. Um, and Jason, like, Jason doesn't have superpowers. He can't actually do this stuff. Um, the fire-breathing bulls are more than a match for him. The various issues with the dragon also a big problem but jason's also hot and so medea falls in love with him medea the daughter i believe of iats yes um but we should also stress here we're not in kansas anymore like there's context to what's going on you'll notice that medea is described as a barbarian witch here um for the Greeks, who were pretty xenophobic, to be perfectly honest, barbarians referred to anyone who did not speak the language of the Greeks, and therefore, again, like, literally the word means that all that they do is speak bar 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 bar. Like, the term barbarian is literally, like, bar-bar speaker. Um, so, the Greeks basically see Medea as being something unknown, dangerous, and threatening. The fact that she is a barbarian means that she's unknown and strange and, like, not civilized. The fact that she is a witch means that she has weird power that they don't understand. Um, which you'll notice is borne out by Medea. Like, Medea is really almost as monstrous as any of the other monsters that Jason and the Argonauts run into over the course of their adventures. Um, and, once again, it's a woman. So let's hold here before Jason can successfully, you know, 
like accomplish his heroic deeds and instead look at the career of Medea because she very much is the driving force going forward um indeed she's going to be the one who having fallen in love with Jason like now gives Jason the the ability and the knowledge to be able to take care of both the fire-breathing bronze-footed bulls and also the dragon. Um, she gives him a potion that makes him fireproof and then he can, you know, yoke the bulls. Um, he give, she like tells him, you know, how exactly to plant the see the dragon's teeth so he doesn't get hurt. And, you know, with the same deal where if he throws the rock amongst the mid amongst them, they'll all fight and kill each other and he won't have to worry about it except for the stragglers. Um, so once again, like Jason isn't actually doing anything. Like, it doesn't even seem like Jason can tie his shoes without either one of the Argonauts or his girlfriend coming in and saving the day. But, of course, because, again, Aetes never had any intention in giving Jason the Golden Fleece in the first place, Aetes doesn't give him the Golden Fleece. Instead, he's just like, you know what? No, I'm not going to give you anything. You were supposed to die. Come on now. Um, so, yeah, go home. Like, please leave me alone. At which point Medea helps Jason steal the Golden Fleece out from under the dragon that Aetes has protecting it, presumably the same dragon who, like, spits out teeth on a regular basis. I don't know how this works. At any rate, what, they steal the Golden Fleece, they take off in the middle of the night with, apparently, her brother, who is along for the ride, um, and that's it. The Argonauts are gone. Of course, Aetes is pissed about this, so he chases after them, and at this point, Medea kills her brother, chops him up into little pieces, and scatters the pieces around the ship, so then Aetes has to, like, get distracted picking up all the pieces of his son while they escape to safety. Yeah, that's as bad as it sounds to you as it is to the Greeks. Like, they absolutely would have thought this was horrific and monstrous as well. And you'll notice that the gods do too. Like, Zeus freaks out and as a result the Argonauts have to, like, take a whole second trip to, like, you know, sac make sacrifices and supplicate Circe and get purified because this was really bad. Um, so... A couple things about this, because this, again, is Medea as driving force and really gives us some of the biggest insight we're going to get about exactly what we're dealing with with Medea. Um, so first off, you'll notice that, like, Jason doesn't seem to have a problem with, you know, promising himself to Medea at this point anyway. Um, so, you know, she basically makes Jason swear to take her as his wife in order to, you know, help him out with the quest. And Jason does this begrudgingly, it seems. Like, at this point, he doesn't have seem to have a whole lot of problem with it, and at this point, Medea is totally helpful. Like, she's just giving him the information and the power he needs to overcome the obstacles and successfully conquer the Fleece. Um, we've seen this with Ariadne and Theseus as well. Like, Ariadne gives him the magic golden thread, which gets him through the labyrinth safely. Um, although Ariadne then, depending on who you read and who you trust, either gets carried off by Dionysus and Theseus is, like, beside himself and really sad, or most versions of the story, Theseus, like, totally gives Ariadne the shaft, doesn't even remember to bring him home with her, and she, like, kills herself out of grief. Women, uh, uh, like, the women who marry heroes typically do not end up well. 
And Medea is a weird example, because Medea is as close as we're going to get to an out-and-out legitimate villain in Greek mythology. Like, most of the time, when the Greeks are, you know, antagonized for some reason by one of the other major figures we're dealing with, like Poseidon antagonizing Odysseus, or Hera antagonizing Heracles, um, usually there's a reason behind it. Like, the the villain of one story will be the hero of another. Um, Hera may be a spiteful monster, but she's helping the Argonauts in this particular story, and therefore she's not a bad person. Um, Medea, we're never going to see Medea presented anything but negatively. Um, remember, she almost tried to kill Theseus, um, presumably before we met her here, which, again, retcons. Like, I don't even know how you're supposed to reconcile, like, her almost killing Theseus with her actions here, like, this being the first time that she apparently comes to Greece. Um, this being a fairly major point in this story. Um, so... The way that the Greeks understand Medea here is ambiguous. Um, she's monstrous, for sure, um, but it, the question is, is, this, is her monstrousness a product of her barbarianness, of her witchness, of, or of her womanness? Um, and each of these is probably contributing in some way. Um, like, you can definitely read this story as Medea doesn't understand how familial relations works. Like, you get the sense that it's possible, not especially likely, but possible, that Medea kills her brother because she doesn't know she's, she's not supposed to. In which case, what we're getting here is some hardcore xenophobia from the Greeks. Like, the Greeks have, you know, basic understanding of how families are supposed to work. Like, you do not kill family members. Um, but Medea, who is a barbarian, doesn't know that family is important and valuable, and therefore you shouldn't kill your own brother. Which suggests, you know, other races, other nations are so horrible, are so savage, that they don't respect family alliances. Um, so that's not great. The other possibility is that she does this because she's a witch. Um, like, her magical powers cause her to, like, lose track of human morality. But that one's kind of a reach here. Like, whenever Medea actually tends to employ her magical powers, it tends to be fairly beneficial. And generally, the Greeks do have a fairly positive view as far as magic is concerned. Like, we haven't run into Hecate very often. Um, she is usually, like, the patron goddess of black magic, and she is usually the one you invoke when you perform magical spells, as far as the Greeks are concerned. Um, like, Medea is probably in with Hecate if she is a witch. But most of the magic that we have seen has been fairly positive. Like, we don't have a whole bunch of necromancers running around in ancient Greece. Instead, magic is employed like Medea employs it. Um, a magic potion that gives Jason immunity to fire. Or, you know, the magic potion that lulls people to sleep later on in the story. Um, like, I believe when we're dealing with the guy with the one vein, like, that's... Medea uses her magical powers to either put him to sleep or confound him. Um, the one other time that Medea does, in fact, like, mag use magic is when she tricks um, the, s the daughters of Peleus. Like, she puts the ram into the pot, the, like, she cuts off the ram and boils it, and then, like, out comes the ram whole because of her magical powers. Um, but again, the magic 
is being used for a positive benefit. Like the ram is whole again. She puts she put it back together. She's using it overarchingly for a bad purpose, namely deceiving the daughters, um, but the magic itself isn't at fault. So it seems unlikely that it's because she's a witch that she murders them. But then we come to the third option, that it's because she's a woman. And this one resonates all too well with the other stories that we have seen in the voyage of the Argonauts thus far. Like, the harpies are supernatural beings that are also horrible women. They eat poor Phidias out of house and home. Hera is acting out of spite. The women of Lemnos murdered their own husbands because they wouldn't sleep with them anymore and carried off new wives to sleep with. The suggestion that Apollodorus is consistently making throughout this text, or at least the suggestion that Apollodorus is getting from his sources, is that women in love are destructive. Um, they lead otherwise good heroic men into horrible situations. Be it Hera screwing over Phineas by like helping Jason out with this quest in the first place, or the women of Lemnos destroying their husbands, or you know um, Heracles falling off the boat because of Hylas, or now Jason getting into getting way over his head with Medea. Um, it's pretty obvious that the consistent theme here is that women will destroy these men's lives. Um, they take advantage of their hospitality like the harpies do. Um, they will, you know, backstab you with the slightest indication of even, like, relatively understandable sexual infidelity like the women of Lemnos and Hera. Um, or they will absolutely use your affection to them to commit atrocities like Medea does. Um, this is not a positive look at women or love in general. Now, what's more, like, it's just gonna get worse. Um, on their way home, the one adventure that is especially remarkable that we should point to um, is they pass the sirens, which once again are women. Um, sirens famously are these women with this, these beautiful voices who will lure sailors to their doom. Like sailors jump off the ship and try to get with the sirens and they drown in the process. Um, we will meet them again with Odysseus. This is a staple of the Greek mariner voyages. Um, but this almost encapsulates this even better. Like, the idea that there are these women who sing so beautifully and who are so beautiful that men throw themselves into the ocean and die at a chance of being with them. Like, this is, this is just the whole story encapsulated. Um, all of these men are throwing their lives away for women. Just like Hesiod has emphasized way back in the, in the works and days in the Theogony, women were created as a punishment for men. All that they do is enjoy men's benefits and destroy them in the process. And yes, this is incredibly misogynistic. Like, let me stress that. But note what that's, where that misogyny is coming from. Note the sort of two-prongedness to this. On the one hand, women are enticing, and because they are enticing, they are dangerous. On the other hand, women are lazy and unproductive, and they do not, in fact, yield any benefit. They are an empty promise. That is what we are being communicated here. And what's more, you'll notice that all of these women 
are overcome by men. They are dangers that men have to face and conquer. The harpies can fly, that's the one awesome thing about them, but the men who are the sons of Briarios can fly better than them. The sirens have this beautiful song that causes men to go mad with lust for them, and yet Orpheus can sing better than them, and he protects them with his counter melody. P.S. Orpheus is on this trip. Not sure if you noticed. Um, Medea is sort of like an outlier as far as that's concerned, because nobody can beat her. Like, there's no mage that can out-magic her. Um, but if anything, the, the magic that she employs is so destructive and so horrible, employed for murder and destruction, that, like, you can't beat her. She is, she is the exception that proves the rule. She is the most dangerous woman of all of the women that they meet. And she is dangerous specifically because she ingratiates herself with the group and acts like she's a hero. Um, she helps the heroes, becomes necessary to them, and as a result, all of her destruction, all of her murderousness goes unchecked. Um, and of course, this culminates with Jason actually coming back to their hometown and Medea murdering Peleus, using the help of, her, of the daughters of Peleus. Which, again, like the symbolism is so rich here and so misogynistic. First, that it's Medea who is doing Jason's dirty work yet again. Like, again, Jason can't tie his friggin' shoes without Medea actually doing it for him. Um, Jason literally gets to this island. Peleus is like, oh, you're back? I wasn't expecting you to come back because I was kind of hoping you would die. And Jason's like, we should really do something about Peleus. And Medea's like, so what are you going to do? And Jason's like, well, I was thinking you could take care of this. And Medea's like, all right, I'll take care of this. And she does. She tricks Peleus' daughters into thinking she's concocted this magical potion that restores youth and vitality um, by using, like, chopping up the ram and throwing it into the pot, and then the ram comes out and it's a little baby lamb. Um, and the, the daughters are totally suckered into this, and they chop up their father, throw him into the pot, and... Oops. Guess he's just gonna be dead. So, you have a woman... Medea scheming against this man, Peleus, who is in fact the rightful king. Like, this is not a case of, you know, Peleus being a usurper. Like, Jason is the rightful heir in all likelihood, especially if Peleus doesn't have any male sons, which we don't see any of them, so why would we think that there are? Um, but Peleus, like, isn't a bad guy. He's just in a bad spot. He has this prophecy. He needs to get rid of the guy who's going to murder him. He does it fairly creatively. And really, it's kind of Jason's fault as well. Um, but what's more, it's his daughters, their gullibility that lead him to his destruction. It's a woman who is conniving and horrible, deceiving women who are stupid and gullible into murdering their own father. Like, it's horrible women all the way down. Um, and what's more, like, this ends with an even more horrible atrocity. Jason finally gets back to, you know, like, his original state. He's finally in a position where he can, like, rule over a territory. But now he doesn't have one to rule because, you know, like, he murdered Peleus, so he's getting run out of town there. Only, you know, Creon, the king of Thebes, is offering his daughter 
to Jason, which would give him legitimacy, would give him an inheritance. He would finally have a legitimate rule. So naturally, he divorces Medea and marries this new girl, and Medea proceeds to murder her daughters and her sons with Jason, kill the new bride-to-be with this poisoned robe, and then takes off into the night. Like, the story of Jason and the Argonauts ends as a tragedy, and the tragedy is that Jason trusted this horrible barbarian witch-woman. Like, ugh. This is the most misogynistic, most horrible, xenophobic, like, insular Greek myth that you will ever run into. Um, It is monstrous how poorly the Greeks perceive women, outsiders, and so on. And from the Greek perspective, like, you could even argue, you could make the case, you know, Jason is himself an asshole. Like, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't save the day at all. Maybe instead what Apollodorus is showing us or what Apollodorus' sources are showing us is that, like, Medea was actually hyper-competent. But it's really hard to read this particular text that particular way because from the Greek perspective, Jason is warranted. He is justified every step of the way. Yeah, he should promise to marry Medea. That kind of sucks, but that was Medea sucking. That was Medea basically putting a gun to Jason's head and saying, you know, marry me or you will not complete your quest and you can never return home. He does, and he brings her home. And to the Greeks, this reads as generosity. Medea was a barbarian witch. She did not have the benefits of civilization. Jason civilized her. Jason, colonizer, imperialist, lands on Colchis and brings back a barbarian wife out of generosity and kindness. And then when Jason divorces her, well, it's understandable. Look at all the horrible things Medea has done in the meantime. Who wouldn't want to divorce her? Moreover, as Jason himself points out here, like, this is an opportunity. He is, has a chance for legitimization. He has been in exile all of this time. And now he comes home, and now he has a chance to be happy. And it, all, it has, all he has to do is get rid of Medea. Why can't you let him be happy, Medea? Why do you have to overreact and murder all these people? Medea is just the flat-out worst. But what I want to stress, and the reason why I had you read, in addition to Jason and the Argonauts, uh, that chunk of Euripides, Euripides' Medea, um, Euripides, very uncharacteristically for the Greeks, takes Medea's side. And there's something really fascinating about this little chunk of text that I had you read. Um, And in fact, this is our first extra credit assignment. Like, the first extra credit assignment, the first, you know, bonus dropped quiz you can get, as well as getting some extra points for the midterm that is, again, coming up next week. Do not forget the midterm coming up next week. Um, The thing, like, you... In order to get the extra credit bonus, you have to read the entirety of the play, the Medea by Euripides. But what I want to stress here is that Euripides is presenting a side to this argument that we have not seen from the Greeks before, and that you will not see again. This is one of the rare examples of the Greeks looking at this story from the woman's perspective. And it is especially interesting that it is Medea, The one villainous, like the villainous who we've seen recur multiple times throughout these myths. The most unqualifiedly evil person in Greek mythology 
Euripides makes her understandable. She He asks us to sympathize with her. Um, so I know that we have not spent any time reading Greek tragedy or comedy or any Greek like theater at this point, um, but one of the tools that you will consistently see in Greek theater is the use of the chorus. The chorus is like the moral center of the play. They often say what the playwright intends to say, like directly to the audience, like not hiding it. Um, as much as the dialogue is important, so are the chorus's ideas. Um, but you'll notice this play presents both sides of the argument. Jason as useless, idiot, like brain-dead asshole, and Medea as sympathetic, like, victim of Jason's, Jason's um, like, mis, uh, misdoings. Um, notice on page 403 in our textbook, Medea calls him out. Oh, you utterly wicked man, for this is the greatest insult I can say with my tongue in face of your cowardice. You have come to me. You have come despite having become my worst enemy. This is not, in fact, courage or audacity to look at your friends in the face after harming them, but the greatest of all sicknesses among humans, shamelessness. Jason has betrayed Medea by promising to marry this other more beautiful non-barbaric non-witch non-murderous woman jason is basically just throwing medea aside and he does it so brazenly um what medea stresses here is that this is betrayal but that this is also like betrayal with boldness betrayal shamelessly I will start to speak first from the first things. I saved you, as all the Greeks who boarded with you on the Argos's hull know, when you were sent to master the fire-breathing bulls with yokes and you sowed the lethal field. As for the dragon, who safeguarded the golden fleece surrounding it with its multiple foils, never sleeping, I raised for you the salvation light by killing it. Then, betraying my father and my house, I myself came with you to Iokos, land of Peleus, with more willingness than good sense, and I killed Peleus in the most painful way to die by his own children's hands and ruined their whole house. But even having experienced these things for me, O most evil of men, you have betrayed us, and you have procured a new marriage, even when you had children. Medea is pointing out here, and Euripides is pointing out here, that Medea got a raw deal. She got carried off from her homeland, barbaric though it may be, helped Jason at every step of the way. Jason, who cannot friggin' tie his shoes without Medea standing over his shoulder pointing where the loops go. And now Jason is just chucking her away, ignoring her, betraying her, marrying someone else. Has he no shame? Does he feel no obligation to her? Now Jason has his rebuttal. Um, Jason on page 404 stresses, you have surely obtained more out of my salvation than you have given, as I will explain. First, you live in Hellas instead of in a barbaric land, and you have become acquainted with our custom to use laws that do not favor violence. Then all the Hellenes recognize that you are wise, and you have become a ce celebrity. If you had lived in the furthest limits of the earth, nobody would talk about you. So, Medea... She's a Greek now, and it's way better to be a Greek than a barbarian. Um, she's rich and famous now. Wouldn't, isn't that better than what she had before? Um, Jason is stressing all these things, and admittedly the Greeks would usually have agreed with her, or with him. But now Medea is given an opportunity to defend herself by Euripides. Um, the chorus even points this out. Jason, you have put together a very nice speech. However, it seems to me, even if I will speak against your opinion, that you do not act justly when you betray your wife. 
And Medea stresses, I surely disagree with many of the mortals in many respects, for to me the one who is unjust but is by nature smart with words deserves the greatest punishment. Euripides is reframing the entire Jason and the Argonauts myth here. Jason, who can't tie his shoes, who cannot do anything heroic, who is basically carried on his own quest by the Argonauts and by Medea, respectively, finally we see what his superpower is. Euripides makes it especially apparent to us. Jason is unjust, but smart with words. He is a liar. He is charismatic. That's Jason's superpower. And it makes sense. It fits with everything we know about the Argonauts to this point. The fact that Jason, on his like one-shop quest to go get the Golden Fleece, somehow managed to recruit literally every A-list hero in Greece at this point in time to help him on this C-list quest is insane. Like, no other myth has this sort of cast in it. How did Jason get them? Because he's charismatic. Because he could convince... Heracles and Theseus and Laertes and Atalanta and sons of Hermes and sons of Poseidon to all join up. He could convince Athena to contribute this magic speaking hull to this magic awesome ship. It is his tongue that gets him Medea, and it's Medea who saves the day for him. So Jason does have a superpower, it's just a shitty superpower. Medea and Euripides here are suggesting that Jason is really the villain. Jason is the one who has manipulated all of the Greeks into helping him. All of these other characters, all of these heroic people to like participate in his quest and his journey. And Medea, well, Medea is just the biggest victim of the bunch. And where this really gets hardcore um, when, in fact, at the end of the Medea, Medea does, in fact, murder her children, the chorus turns aside. They allow it to happen. And this is unheard of. Like I said, the chorus is always the moral center of these plays. It's the opportunity for the playwright to speak to the audience directly. So when we see Oedipus, we're going to see the chorus weep at all of the misfortunes that are undergoing Thebes and Oedipus and all of his family. They're going to be the ones that turn to the camera and say, and this is what happens when you try and avoid fate. It just gets all that much worse. Everybody suffers all that much more. Like, the theme is literally there at the end of the play. Here the theme is that Medea is justified. Medea, the horrible villain who cut up her brother into tiny pieces and spread it across the ocean. Medea, who murdered Peleus by way of his own daughters. Medea, who murdered her own children. She did it all for love. Euripides says, wouldn't you want the same thing from your wife, in a sense? That level of devotion, that level of commitment. So what's her problem? No, it's not her problem. It's Jason. Jason, who has screwed her over at every step of the way, who has relied on her for everything, and then turns on her as soon as he gets the opportunity. That's horrible behavior. Not what Medea is doing. Medea is just reacting in a way that is civilized, understandable. Like, maybe not ideal. You shouldn't go around murdering people. Like, Euripides is not suggesting that. But in a way, she is understandable. 
she doesn't understand perhaps what she is doing she is so driven to rage and anger and madness by her love that we should sympathize with her we should feel her pain if we have accusations to make they should be about jason Jason, this clever, charismatic liar. Jason, who can't do anything for himself. Now, I want to stress that this is an unusual reading. But I also want to stress how insightful this reading is. Like, as much as the Apollodorus version of the myth is a giant misogynistic flaming piece of crap, like, emphasizing all of these horrible things about women and about strangers and about barbarians and about other cultures and, like, just... Ugh. As much as I want to stress that, I also want to stress that the myth is rich enough that even in Apollodorus's telling, you can find greater depth to it. And the Greeks do. Euripides finds more to the Jason the Argonauts myth than likely was ever intended by anyone who ever put it to paper until Euripides. Medea is powerful because she's a horrific villain in most understandings, but she is also powerful because she's not just a horrific villain. There's more to her than that. Um, and as much as all of that myth explains the Greek misogyny, explains the horrible behavior of the Greeks towards women and what they think about women and how they think women are inferior and destructive and betraying and spiteful, how Hera is a monster and Medea is a murderer and the harpies are just gluttons and so on and so forth, as much as all of that is in there, Euripides takes the time to, to ask, what are they feeling? What is the woman's side of this story. And it is indicative of what Greece could have become, I think. Because Euripides is writing late. He's writing in the classical period. He is a contemporary of Plato and Aristotle, not of Homer, not of even like the earlier uh, Greek writers before the classics. Um, he is late in this process. And Euripides is unusual even among the playwrights, insofar as he does question a lot of the mythic traditions that he is approached with. Um, so I want you to keep this in mind. Like, the Greeks were horrible misogynists much of the time, and their myths frequently speak to that. But that's not it. The Greeks are getting better at this. And some of the Greek voices will dissent from this overarching Greek attitude. It's never as simple as all Greeks believe X. Some Greeks don't. Some Greeks argue against the crowd. That's frequently what makes a great artist, I think. Um, and Euripides is reaching toward that. He is looking at it differently. Um, but we're already running out of time, and we haven't talked about our other major heroic myths, specifically Perseus and Bellerophon. Um, fortunately, Bellerophon is like really short and really straightforward, like, he, he rides Pegasus, he, he killed the Chimera, like, what more do you want? Um, the one thing that I will point out is that most of the traditions, or, like, the better stories of Bellerophon that I've read, this one is kind of, like, not great. I'm pretty sure this is another Library of Apollodorus entry, um, and he doesn't quite do Bellerophon justice. Um, the really cool thing about Bellerophon is that, like, he outsmarts the Chimera in most versions of the myth. Um, like, rather than just, like, flying really high and then shooting with it, it with arrows um the story that i'm especially familiar with like he puts a giant chunk of lead on a pike 
and he like flies really close to the chimera and the chimera breathes out fire because like one of the heads is a dragon and when he does the lead melts and it plops right into the chimera's mouth and poisons it and it dies um so you know ingenuity on bellerophon's part kudos to flying bellerophon uh, but perseus is really the much richer story and the much more interesting one um again we have a guy getting hoisted by his own petard like falling into his own trap as far as going on the quest in the first place um perseus promises to bring the head of you know he, he would not stop at bringing the head of medusa as a wedding gift for hippodamia um but notice also that perseus gets a lot of help on this one like not help in the same way as jason gets help like jason literally can't do anything unless medea shows him how to do it um in this case, Perseus gets a lot of help through Hermes, who is probably as close to a patron deity of this particular adventure, um, and others as well. Um, specifically, he gets swag. Like, this is a D&D type adventure, like, where he's going to get all of the cool magical loot, and with the magical loot, he's going to make, make, like, be able to accomplish great feats. Um... So he gets the Cap of Hades, which allows him to turn invisible. He gets, like, the winged sandals of Hermes, so he can, like, fly around and, and run around. Um, he's got this magical wallet, like, which apparently is just, like, you can hold anything in it. Um, and then they get this polished shield and this adamantine sickle, and, like, he manages to fight the Medusa by looking into the shield so he's not actually making eye contact with her and therefore not turning to stone. And he cuts off her head with the adamantine sickle, and for some reason Pegasus flies out because apparently Poseidon was sleeping with Medusa. Like, this gets weird. At any rate, then he takes the head and now he's got the head of Medusa and he can use that as magic swag as well. So, like, when he's rescuing Andromeda, um, he turns all of his opponents and, like, all the people who are going to sacrifice her to stone just by revealing the head of the, of the Gorgon Medusa. Um, and then he gives everything back, importantly. Um... It's significant to notice that, like, where many of our Greek heroes will sort of have their magic swag that they're associated with, and then they just keep it, and, like, they're always associated with it, like, you know, like uh, Heracles with his lion pelt or his club um, or his poisoned arrows. Here, Perseus has to... It's just a loan. Like, he has to give all the magic swag back. Um, and importantly, some of this magic swag actually becomes significant in later myths. The head of Medusa, especially, Athena is going to take it and put it on her shield. Um, and therefore, like, whenever she shows up in battle, um, she will, like, brandish her shield and everyone will become petrified, possibly temporarily, possibly permanently, depending on exactly how it goes. Um, and, like, this is a major characteristic of Athena's appearance now. When you see her depicted on pottery or in art, um, she's usually carrying the head of Medusa on her shield. Which, notice, if anything should have been Perseus's, it would have been the head. Like, he caught it. Like, it's not like Medusa is using it anymore. So, you know, presumably that should belong to him. Um, but he gives that back as well. And I think the suggestion here is that this is... This is one of the few examples of a no-qualifications decent hero. Like, Perseus honors the gods. Perseus gives back what he's given. Perseus recognizes that he only accomplished what he did with the help of all of the gods. Therefore, while both Heracles and Jason, and arguably Theseus as well, are all guilty of hubris to some degree, um, per Perseus is not. Perseus is not proud. 
um, Perseus recognizes his place in the cosmic order. Um, but we'll talk about hubris next time, because Heracles. Um, which, Heracles is probably the only person who deserves hubris, but we'll get there. Um, anyway, for next time we're going to talk about Heracles and we're going to talk about Gilgamesh. And once again we have a response paper due. What I recommend is contrasting the two, because there are some very interesting differences between this the greatest of the Greek heroes and this the greatest of the Babylonian heroes. Um, and the two traditions and the two stories that they represent. Um, so for next time, The Twelve Labors of Heracles and The Adventures of Gilgamesh. Um, I hope you enjoy them. They're kind of some of the best myths we're going to read in here. So enjoy.